Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Three quick notes before we get started. First of all, there is no show next week. I'm taking a little bit of a vacation. Second, we are rapidly approaching episode 250, and I would like people's ideas about whether or not we should do anything special for it. Uh, A couple of friends have suggested that I should be the interview subject, and I just thought I would throw it out to the group as to whether or not that is a good idea. So feel free to email me, eric, E-R-I-C, at culturemap.com with your thoughts on that, or of course, you can always DM me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. And then finally, my guests this week are Paul Key and Christopher Hottoft from Gulfstraumen at Post Market. I will say we recorded this last week while Christopher was in Houston, which is before he was just awarded a Michelin star for his flagship restaurant in Norway. So I didn't ask him about being awarded a Michelin star is because I couldn't see the future. I didn't know it was going to happen. So with that said, let me introduce my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at Fulmer H-O-U. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, Ben Berg, the owner of restaurants like the Any Cafe, Turner's, B&B Butchers, etc., has partnered with the Bastion Collection, a New York-based hospitality management firm, to reconcept French fine dining restaurant La Table. That restaurant is now closed. It's going to undergo a series of renovations and reopen in the spring. And part of those new renovations will create space for an Italian restaurant downstairs called Tavola, which of course is Italian for tables. So we'll have La Table upstairs, Tavola downstairs. Michael, let me throw it to you. I'm not sure if you'd ever been to La Table, but maybe just what were kind of your impressions of it? Okay, I have not. Um, I will say this, that when La Table opened, there was a lot of, uh, you know, it made a nice little splash. It was good to have a French place, um, you know, upscale French place, which Houston does not have very many of, to be sure. But, you know, what made, also made a splash was their chicken, which I think originally debuted around $90 and at one point hit over $100. And I, I was actually going to go there just out of pure curiosity and try it. But it finally it's gone. So that's not going to happen. Well, and, and actually, I'm glad that you brought the chicken up because for me, the things that made the restaurant special were dishes like that. Those kind of over the top, large format. You know, you can talk about the chicken. They did a, a cognac marinated steak for a little while. They did Dover sole filleted table side. You know, all of these kind of old school dishes, you know, led by Valerio Lombardozzi, uh, who's been a guest on the show a while back, uh, who's really one of the, the truly most hospitable and polished front of house service professionals in the city. And, you know, they closed for a long while at the start of the pandemic. And when they reopened, they decided to be more casual and all of that stuff went off the menu and didn't return. And uh, Mary Clarkson and I went there for dinner and talked about it on the show that the restaurant just didn't, didn't feel the same without some of those more fine dining touches that, you know, that table side service, all the things that I had kind of grown to love about Latab. 
And it felt like a restaurant that was in need of some pretty comprehensive changes to its identity. So I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm surprised about the details, right? That they chose to partner with Ben Berg, who has both Turner's and the Annie Cafe in the same complex as Latab. But I'm not surprised that they decided to reboot it because I, having eaten there relatively recently, like earlier this year, it felt like a restaurant that was in need of like major changes. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, Ben Berg, of course, is a very savvy restaurant uh, operator, you know, with B&B Butchers just blowing up when it first started. Now he's just like he's like everywhere. You know, he's like Jude Law in the late 90s. He's like in every movie. It's like it seems like every new place somehow his name is associated. Um, and, you know, the, the, the great thing about that for him certainly is that people are coming to him now, you know, for. Uh, consultation and operation and that kind of thing. And he's got a lot of flexibility with his success. So I'm really curious to see what happens. You know, I wish we did have kind of a high end French place, you know, with that, those, all those service touches, um, I guess nearby is a Trois, you know, over in Uptown park, which is actually very good. Uh, a little more bistro style, a little more casual. And that's what we have through most of Houston. I guess Shenu up in Humble is more, formal old school so straight out of the 1980s um, absolutely, uh, like absolutely. like nouveau cuisine never happened extremely <laughs> like i had the i finally dined there earlier this year very delicious very old school yeah very old school so um yeah i'm curious to see what happens but i you know i would have confidence in, in what he does uh sophia seems to by all you know accounts seems to be doing quite well so i think the future is bright uh and i'm most curious and i'll, I'll look forward to going there yeah, and I, I think it's sort of worth sort of expanding on this. You know, the Bastion Collection obviously has been operating on the top for a number of years, but they also opened Le Jardinet at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. You know, it's the third location, right? There's one in New York and one in Miami. Both of them each hold one Michelin star. So using their culinary expertise, they do the Joel Robichon restaurants in America. And so kind of bringing that level of culinary talent combined with Ben Berg and his team's operational experience in, in creating, you know, a, a memorable atmosphere. I'm not going to say the sky's the limit exactly, but it is a very intriguing possibility. And the new Latop should really be uh, a place to get really excited about. It'll be interesting to see, because I mean, as we've seen over the last anywhere from five to 12, 15 years, how less formal restaurants have become, you know, dress codes being relaxed and people liking that. And Houston, and speaking specifically for Houston, is it's never really seemed to embrace that kind of very high-end, fine dining, uh, you know, atmosphere. You know, March, Tony's, Le Jardinier are a few places that kind of have that, but we don't really, you know, it's, we're not going to see, you know, uh, I don't know, like a Le Bernardin or, a, you know, a single thread or something like that here. I don't, I don't think that'll happen anytime soon. I would be curious to see it happen, but we'll, you know, and that's fine. That's fine. I think we have great quality and great diversity. Um, however, just, we, there's not a whole lot of French here. And I just don't think that's uh, really something that the, the city really embraces that much. It's not really something you see very often actually in the South, Southeast or in Texas. No, I, I think that's right. I think that there is kind of a lack of a general lack of French restaurants, which probably implies a certain lack of interest from from diners. I mean, obviously, you know, you mentioned Etoile Artisans is still going going strong in Midtown. There's a few other places here and there, but 
I do think it's interesting that just to shift gears just a little bit, that Ben is doing another Italian concept, Tavola. First of all, because there's so much Italian, you know, we're in this wave of new Italian restaurants in the city. You know, he'll be right next door to North. Il Baco from Dallas is opening at the corner of Post Oak and San Felipe uh, in the next month or two. And he already has two distinct Italian concepts under the Berg Hospitality umbrella. You mentioned Trattoria Sofia, which is kind of a northern, a little more sophisticated. Uh, and then Bibi Italia, his red sauce Italian-American concept, uh, had been in the energy corridor. It's about to reopen in Sugarland. So, you know, and this is, I asked him about that. He said, no, this is different than either one of those. It's a little more Roman style, a little more, you know, intimate kind of shoulder to shoulder. So we'll be interested to see how, how that all comes together. But you can say we don't have very many French restaurants. We have a ton of Italian restaurants and seemingly no limit to the appetite of Houstonians for pasta. I, I think that's something you'll see across the country because so much of Italian cuisine has been incorporated into the American canon. Uh, and there's enough diversity in Italy when you go from even the same kind of dish, how it's done regionally different from the north to the south to Sicily to, you know, Amalfi, that that there's a there really is good diversity. It's really about simple ingredients and quality. Uh, and I think the American appetite for more Italian food is is it's, it's like steakhouse. So I don't think it'll ever be really sated. I think it's a very safe bet. Um, and it's it's not. You know, it's not phoning it in at all. I, I think that there's a great room for uh, all kinds of levels of quality that you can do. So I think it's promising. All right. That seems like a good point to move on to topic number two, which is Counter Common Beer Works and Kitchen is opening this week in the Bel Air Triangle, a new brew pub with an eclectic food menu, everything from burgers and bao buns to tacos and shareables like fried chicken and fried fish paired with a bunch of beers that they are brewing in-house like a Munich Hellas, an American Pale Ale, and a hazy IPA. Michael, this is opening in the same shopping center as Blood Brothers Barbecue right there in the heart of the Bel Air Triangle. What are your thoughts? I mean, are you intrigued about uh, a new brew pub coming to the Bel Air area? Bel Air is really starting to see real growth You know, after it being real a real desert. Uh, I mean, I would go there to go to Pico's back in the day. And then, of course, they moved back inside, you know, the loop. Um, so really, w- one of the few reasons I even go out there is to go to Blood Brothers Barbecue. So there, I think there's a lot of room for growth, you know, with the housing marking being what it is and how it's changing there. There's plenty of people there who want to dine out. And they don't want to have to drive 20, 30, 40 minutes. They want to eat there. You speak about the same shopping center. I mean, Bernie's Burger Bus was there. And by all rights, it was doing fine. You know, the reason for it closing was not for the lack of business at that oper- at that location. Uh, you know, there's other issues involved, which you've talked about before. So I think there's plenty of room for this to to be successful. I don't know if they're doing I guess they're probably doing their own beers uh, to promote their own brand. Correct. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a brewery. So they're brewing their own. beer. Yeah. Uh, so some of them, sometimes places like that, they really put so much effort into the beer that sometimes the food is phoned in. Uh, less and less you see that happen now because people have become much more discerning in their tastes. Uh, I mean, they know when they see crappy food and they stop eating it. And you can do it at, and keeping your food cost in a good space. I mean, you look at what, you know, what they've done at St. Arnold's, that it's not this crazy, you know, uh, 
challenging menu, but there's some really great items on there. And the food's like really good. And it, they get it out in a timely manner. And so there's no reason why you can't like other places aren't going to have good quality food that can be, you know, that they can get out in an efficient time that works for single people, that works for families, et cetera. Uh, well, so, and, and certainly like having a compelling food menu has been a big part of uh, Buffalo Bayou Brewing's appeal, right? Arash Karad, who I've had on the show, you know, a couple of times is is very conversant in, in that. And then, you know, their chef at Countercommon. Iggy Oliveira, he's always been kind of behind the scenes, right? He's been a, a sous chef or a line cook at places like Riel and Dackenbop. And, and uh, the last time I saw him pop up, he was at Roots, the wine bar in the East End. So he's kind of leading the kitchen this time. And, and this is someone who's been, like I said, behind the scenes for a number of years, kind of getting to, to step up and show what he can do. So I'm very curious about uh, trying the food. You know, my perspective on the beer is, you know, I'm not a super sophisticated beer drinker. It just sort of has to sort of has to be good enough. And then, you know, all these little breweries and brew pubs that are popping up around town. I mean, we talked about local group on the show uh, last week and Bad Astronaut. They're basically neighborhood bars and they just have to sort of establish themselves in their neighborhood. I'm not aware of anything quite like it in that Bel Air area. And so it seems like they have all the ingredients to be successful. Yeah, it does seem so. I mean, when you and Linda talked about it last week, it was really interesting. Um, and, and mentioning Arash, Buffalo Bayou, like getting somebody in who not not only knows how to run a kitchen, but can really put out quality food. Uh, they can, but they can put it out consistently. Uh, you know, and so if they've got that, I mean, it's not that far from me. I'll make the trek. Absolutely, and and you know, we know people who have bought you know, houses in that kind of general area and are looking for more options in that area and they're getting them, you know, I mean, New York eatery just opened uh, across the street from blood brothers, kind of an evolution of New York bagel and coffee shop. Aya sushi is getting ready to open in the old Bernie's burger bus space. That's from the Kalba people. And it's going to have chef Yoshi there who was at a key and then at Soto and is, and is really one of the best sushi chefs in town, at least from my perspective. And you know, Lankford Grocery is going to open their second location in that area. Yeah, so I'm really sorry to cut you off there, but I'm yeah. really curious about that because, you know, Lankford is one of those Houston institutions. You know, the waitresses, the people there have been working there since day one and nothing's changed and, and, and it shouldn't change. And their burgers are fantastic. So this is their first foray into, you know, rep, seeing if they can replicate. So uh, I'm excited about that. And I don't think they'll compete really I don't think it'll be a problem with Blood Brothers being in the same center because they're more of a lunch daytime. It's a different somewhat food. Uh, I think there's more than enough room uh, and enough people for them both to be successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then let's move on to topic number three. Riata Cellars, a new wine bar shop and winery is opening this week in the Heights on 19th Street. Uh, Riata comes to us from wine industry veteran Mary Dodson and her business partner, Sandy Epps, who uh, owned a little wine bar out in Columbus, Texas. But before that, she was in the music business. She was the manager for both the Toadies and the Butthole Surfers. And when you go to Riata, she has a gold record for the Butthole Surfers album, Electric Larry Land, and a platinum record from the Toadies album rubberneck on the wall so that's uh wow as a kind of 90s music junkie like uh, that's pretty cool 
That's very cool. I saw the surfers back in the day in uh, in D.C. I think I still have like scars and wounds from that, uh, you know, <laughs> that that event as it was back in the day. Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those. And then, you know, and then they put together a little staff. Uh, Sandy's daughter, Allison, is an artist. So she made like a functional artist. So she made the the wine racks and some of the furniture. She's making the bar stools. Uh, they have another woman working there named Christina, who's a wine industry veteran and also a chemist, has a degree in chemistry from the University of Texas, which is kind of a random thing to, you know, I, I like people who have uh, non-food backgrounds in, in food and roles. That always makes Robert Del Grande had his, you know, graduate work in, in chemistry. Right. PhD yeah. in biochemistry. Yes. Well cited. So I, you know, I say all that to say to you, this is primarily a, a wine shop with a little tasting bar and some seating. Uh, but they also have a winery license so they can buy fruit from elsewhere, blend it to their specifications. They, you know, Sandy's contacts in the art world. If she talked about, you know, Ian Moore, you know, legendary Texas musician, someone like that could maybe design a label for them. That'd be kind of fun. But, you know, there's just, there's not a ton of like wine bar, wine shop in the Heights, like certainly Heights Grocer on North Main Street. That's a little farther away. Obviously, you know, our friend, Rebecca Masson and her mother have uh, Dodie's, the little wine shop next to Fluff. But, you know, outside of that, it's mostly grocery stores. So, you know, another place to get small produced wines, a place to sip wine. It's right across the street from Squabble. So if, you know, if Squabble's on a wait, you can go there and get a glass of wine. It's the same development that Beso, the Spanish restaurant, is coming to uh, later this year, maybe early next year. So there'll be a symbiotic relationship there. Really, I just kind of want to get the word out, but uh, let me throw it to you. What do you what do you think about a, a new wine shop opening the nights? You know, it's I think back to it doesn't seem that long ago, probably, but of course it is like 15, you know, 12 years ago that we basically didn't even have a wine bar in Houston. I guess there was the wine bucket on West Alabama. Interestingly enough, as they started to proliferate, the, <laughs> the wine bucket closed. But, you know, with the heights having just exploded since they, you know, changed their adoption of uh of liquor and uh beer and wine rulings there it's just it's it's no longer just the the family dwellings there you're having all these big apartment complexes there some of them have opened and some of them have yet to open and most of these are you know what you would call i guess a list you know higher end um for people with a lot of disposable income so is there enough room to have like does a wine bar have to be a almost like a, a a neighborhood thing nearby uh, you've got Sonoma, which I know is moving to that look. That right, new, it just just closed on Sudawood and is yeah, moving to Garden Oaks to the stomping grounds, just, just north of six ten. But you know, Postino, of course, is just blown up. It's more of a restaurant, but you know, you can bring your own wine in there. We Olive Wine and Bar, Baco. Um, you know, uh, it sounds like they're bringing very interesting people to bear, uh, and a lot of times, what's going to get you in the neighborhood and keep you there as a as a part of it. Is it's not just what you offer and your pricing, although that, of course, is very important, but the people have a lot to do with it. People will ultimately go back to places where the service, where they get good service, you know, and, you know, it really is the whole of the cheers phenomena is that's what, you know, what will keep places going is you can serve, you know, great food, but if you have bad service, it'll close. You can have mediocre food and great service and places still stay open because we see plenty of them. So, you know, they bring a lot to the table. Uh, and so I think there's plenty of opportunity for them to be successful there because there's just, 
there's just so much disposable income in that area. Right. And being on 19th Street, you know, it's very walkable. You sort of walk out the back door and you sort of look up and there's all these new apartments. <laughs> As you said, there's new apartments all up and down Shepherd. And yeah, I think the people who live in places like that are going to really uh, appreciate a business. They're still going to drive. This is Houston. I mean, there'll be that brief <laughs> period. But well, let me, a- and let me just say to all those people, it, it has a generous parking lot. So uh, but, you're good. Yeah, hearing that term walkable, you know, in Houston in the same sentence is uh, it's a rare thing. So uh, we'll see how that works out. But, um, you know, if they can go someplace that's three minutes away as opposed to 15 minutes away, they'll do that, you know. And if the service is really great, then they'll keep coming back. So I have high hopes for them. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. Michael, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Georgia James. This is Chris Shepard's luxurious steakhouse. It is now relocated to its permanent home in Regent Square, a new mixed-use development at the corner of Dunleavy and West Dallas in Montrose. Let's kind of take our time with this, break it down a little bit. Obviously, this is uh, kind of Chris Shepard and Underbelly Hospitality's flagship restaurant. You know, it evolved out of the very first one-fifth concept, one-fifth steak. It opened in the old underbelly space, 1100 Westheimer in 2018. For the last few months, it's been in the one-fifth space, uh, the old Marks on Westheimer. But but now, you know, dedicated facility, very spacious. Just maybe talk about kind of your first impressions when you walked in the door. What did you think of the new Georgia James? Good Lord. It is a beautiful restaurant. I mean, it is stunning. It's, it's someplace that, yes, of Business people can go for sure. Uh, it's got the recessed lighting. There's no Edison lights. They're not trying to be this new thing. No, that whole farmhouse minimalist modernist aesthetic <laughs> is not that, that Chris right. was known for for a long time. That's all gone. Well, he's not the only one. You know, the you know the exposed ceiling. You know, the ducts, the whole nine yards. That's just you know maybe somebody will open another bar that way. But for a place like this, no. And it looks and feels like something very upscale and beautiful. I mean, the just a microcosm of that is the, like the hostess desk as you walk in, it looks like a, a command center. It's just this beautiful solid wood, uh, sort of almost circular oval with a few openings for their uh, host or hostesses to work it. And it, it really is like, you know, it's the old cliche. It's like there, that's the first point where people get, you know, it's where you agree. It's the first impression. It, it's that's it's it's important and they clearly it's very thoughtful that they've done something like that they've, they've put something that is well structured is beautiful uh but it's also extremely functional i mean obviously i've not worked it but just looking at it and having worked restaurants before you know i'm used to seeing these little lecterns or a small dais that they put a ipad on or small you know to to run the reservations it's it's often an afterthought in interior design and certainly from architects and here it's clearly something that was thought of beforehand uh, and that is a very telling thing um the chairs are incredibly comfortable and very solid you know these are not inexpensive chairs at all uh the tables are really well done i like that they're all set up for four tops you can do it as a two top but this is kind of crucial too is that most of them are leaf you know, they have the leaves that you can pop up. And in fact, when we dined there, that's what we did. because We ordered so much food. We ordered a lot of food. 
But that's also something that's really important is that we're able to do that and people could still maneuver, like the servers could still maneuver around the restaurant. They The tables weren't too close together, but that gives them great flexibility to create six tops, you know, or somebody's like, they walk in, they go, hey, no, we're only going to be four, they're a deuce, or they can put it together and make a large top. It's It gives a great flexibility for them, how they, how they seat people. And then, you know, having the big wide open windows, you know, overlooking the, what's, you know, the beautiful kind of courtyard with the nice fountain. The other side, they could have put the windows on the other side with the kitchen, you know, with it facing the road on West Dallas. And like, no, no, thank you. This was a good call all the way around. Just a couple other sort of elements to mention. I thought that glass sculpture, the kind of snakes around, you know, from the hostess stand back into the dining room, it's it's sort of meant to be uh, reminiscent of, of smoke and flames rising from a fire pit. Very pretty, very striking. And they kept the open kitchen, which is not an element that you typically see in most steakhouses, but it was an important part of, uh, you know, the underbelly dining room. And so they, they kept that. And so you can, you can see the guys, you know, searing the steaks and, and putting the baller boards together and all that. Oh yeah, definitely. It's almost like a Chihuly, you know, the famous uh, glass sculptor. It was uh, really, it's really stunning, but it's not like in your face either. It it integrates well. It's really a a well-designed restaurant. It's a very large restaurant, too. It's definitely bigger than what Georgia James was at Underbelly or One Fifth. And then there's a whole other upstairs, which isn't even open yet. Right, um, right. We didn't even right. We didn't even talk about, you know, there's going to be a whole bar area upstairs, indoor, outdoor, fire pits, TVs, uh, the whole shebang. That, you know, they say that's a month away. I mean, we got to walk up there and take a look around. I'm going to take the over on a month, but uh, who wants to sit outside in July and August in Houston, really, like not very many people. So if yeah. it's ready for football season, if it's ready for cooler weather, you know, that that ought to be enough. But let me shift you to the food. You know, what always has distinguished Georgia James from other steakhouses is, first of all, they sear all the steaks on cast iron. And second of all, it has a little bit of that underbelly ethos, which is to say that it's, you know, some of the dishes are inspired by Houston's different immigrant communities. So especially Vietnamese. So we got the carpaccio that's sort of spiced like pho and served with, you know, bean sprouts and some of the vegetables that you would get with a bowl of pho. And of course they do the, the Viet Cajun roasted oysters that are like, you know, with the garlic butter a little bit like in the style of Viet Cajun crawfish. And then, you know, we had the, the hearth roasted pork belly with the, the gojujang, the Korean inspired dish. So I don't know. What did you think of the food? And, you know, how do you, how do you feel like it sets itself apart from some of the other steakhouses? It's a tricky thing in the steakhouse in that, you know, there's these tried and true things that you need to do. Uh, so you can't go too far off the reservation, but at the same time, tweaking, you know, appetizer dish, side dishes is what will also separate you, uh, you know, aside from your, you know, wine list and service. But as far as just speaking about menu, um, I think a good point is like the Caesar salad. Uh, you know, I know, I know Chris met with the Cardinis and went over the original recipe and how that was made and how they could incorporate that into a, a restaurant dynamic. And, and they seem to have done a very good job with that. Is it, It's $20, right? That seems out of control, but it's obviously large enough to share with two or more people. So that makes it actually very reasonably priced considering the quality of it. Um, the slab salad, which is kind of like their wedge, which they call a slab, is one of the best in town. I mean, I remember having it at the original location and just kind of like for something so simple, you're like, okay, this just blew me away doing, you know, the lardons instead of bacon bits, 
good quality blue cheese that wasn't too sharp. It's just, it was just kind of perfect. You know, it's like, I want to have that again. It was very satisfying. Uh, and that's that, you know, that goes to the heart of what a steak at, you know, a steakhouse experience can be is that sense of nostalgia, that sense of satisfaction, uh, that, you know, the expectation that people have, uh, whether they live here or they're, you know, they're visiting, um, as far as the steaks and the beef, they go a little bit, a little bit different there. You know, most places you're going to have the strip, the ribeye, the filet, and then you see whether or not they do long bone or porterhouse or whatever. They're not doing a filet there. They're doing the the Denver cut, which is the Zabuton, you know, which is technically the Japanese name that uh, for the Denver cut. We didn't have it when we were there, but I've had it before. I've had the Snake River Farm, Zabuton, the Denver cut, and it's it's fantastic. It's delicious. So anybody who's like, wow, oh, there's no filet, you're like, nah, you're in good shape there. Uh, I thought what was really impressed me about the steaks, what we got was one, they were cooked spot on, you know, spot on mid-rare from top to bottom. And they had a good sense of char, that whole cast iron, you know, spraying the butter over the top, which is how I do it at home now, most of the time was fantastic. So they scored on the steaks with that. I would agree with all of that. You know, I certainly enjoyed the oysters. I thought the fuck carpaccio, you know, no disrespect to the steaks or, or anything else we ate. But I thought that was probably the best, the single best item that we had. You know, that's that's definitely one of those things that I'd go back for. I, I, you know, I like a wedge. You know, we all like a wedge. The slab is is up there with among the best versions of that in Houston. You know, I again, like, you know, we've been to steakhouses where the steaks aren't always cooked exactly to the right temperature because they're doing a ton of volume. And it's tricky to get that right on every individual cut. But I thought that, you know, we ordered a strip, we ordered a ribeye, we, we ordered them medium rare, and they were both medium rare. So so credit to them for that. Sides, you know, we went with the smashed and fried new potatoes. We did the cream collards, the charred corn, which is kind of there, kind of an elote riff, uh, and then the brown butter mushrooms. And, I, you know, I think smashed and fried potatoes, can't go wrong there. The charred corn I really like. It's kind of a nice springy dish. That fried onion masala, that's new uh, for this location. We really enjoyed that. You know, I, I think there was quite a lot to recommend it. You know, fried chicken, you know, we got that. I wanted to try it. They've been kind of bragging about it. Very crispy, uh, good flavor, just a little bit dry for me. It was the third day. I'm not going to hold any of this against them. But let me just kind of ask you this one thing, because, you know, when we break down the individual components, you know, it's a pretty dining room. Uh, the service was very friendly. Like, obviously, we're well known to them. They were they were looking to impress us. I thought that the food was well executed. The whole experience didn't feel quite cohesive to me. And I don't know if you want to agree with that or disagree with that, or, or is that just opening week jitters and, and we flush it? Is this a restaurant that still needs to kind of find its identity and its new home? Or have we reached the point where Georgia James is like one very good steakhouse in a city with a lot of very good steakhouses? And so people will choose it based on kind of individual menu items and its environment. And, you know, maybe not necessarily because it's you know, Chris Shepard's Steakhouse, right? It has to sort of exist beyond that now. Where do you see Georgia James kind of fitting into the larger steakhouse? Here? Well, addressing your first comment about whether it was a cohesive experience, I think it was. I mean, we were there, obviously, they weren't even officially open. They, like, they officially opened up Friday, whatever the hell that means. You know, they were open. When, you could book it on Resi. They were, I mean, they were open right. enough. But it wasn't a very crowded restaurant because they weren't promoting, which was a smart way to go. Not, you know, like let your line cooks, you know, figure out what exactly how they're doing things before they get crushed. Let your wait staff figure out how like the POS is working within some of these, you know, some of these items. I mean, 
they're not reinventing themselves. They're really moving to a new location. And one thing I kind of appreciate is like, I remember like the days going to underbelly. I never knew whether I was getting an entree or an appetizer, you know, the price points were kind of all over the place. I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to kind of plan my meal. And unless you just completely turn yourself over the server and say, okay, well, you're just going to control everything. It was very kind of an awkward experience. Whereas I see this as much smoother, like, it's really priced. They did things like, okay, their Gulf Coast oysters are, you know, less than the East Coast oysters, but they were offering murder points as their Gulf Coast oysters. Murder points out of Alabama are fantastic and usually get a premium price. So, I mean, that's a really good sign right there. The Wagyu, you know, which we didn't get is really in the realm of reasonably priced. You know, when I say $25 an ounce, which is what it was you know, when we were there, that's really in line, if not, you know, several other places where it's much higher for the same Miyazaki prefecture Wagyu. So they're, it looks like they're standardizing it and making it you know, much easier. Because if let's say you're a, a business guy coming in, you've got like eight business people, you're on point, you've got to order for the whole table or they're all ordering, you, know, you don't want it to be a confusing thing. And so if anything, I think there's more coherence that they've brought to the menu. And I certainly appreciate that while still keeping their identity as to you know, like where they're tweaking things instead of like having onion rings, the fried onion masala. It was essentially onion rings, but man, they were like our server recommended. They were fantastic. Uh, you know, the smashed and fried potatoes instead of getting the usual gratin. You know, the charred corn was almost like a mock chew, you know, it had almost a little bit of spice to it. So it gives it a Houston kind of Texas identity. So I, I think they're being true to themselves, but at the same time saying, hey, you know what? We're, we're here to compete and we're right alongside all the big boys in town, both, you know, local as well as national. Uh, and there's no reason why as a date, as a family or as a business, you would not book there. At least that I can see initially. Right. And then, of course, we ordered a la carte, right? We did not get the baller board, which is kind of the thing that they're known for, you know, this giant, this giant plank where they they pick what you get in terms of the the steaks and sides and accoutrement, but we saw plenty of them go by because there were some groups in the restaurant that night and, and they were treating themselves. And so, you know, if you want that really decadent, really over the top kind of steakhouse experience uh, with the great visual for Instagram, probably no place better than Georgia James for that. Yeah, I've seen them go out. I personally have had awkward experiences where that concerned, so I won't, I wouldn't go there with that, but we get back to like, what is like, when you get to the end of where we talk a lot about a restaurant in the end, like, would you go back? And I'm like, yes, I would go back. Well, let me just throw this to you slightly differently because you and I, when new steakhouses sort of come, when I get the opportunity to go to a new steakhouse, I like to take you because you've worked in steakhouses, you know, steakhouses, you appreciate steakhouses just in the last year or so, right? We've done Gatsby's, we've done Patton's, you know, we just went to Georgia James. I know you've been to Doris Metropolitan. Where does this fit for you? Well, it kind of goes back to what I'm saying is that I think it really they are fitting. They're they're being more wide open and that like you can bring business people in there. Their PDR, their private dining room looked uh, large enough to hold. I mean, it looked like there was at least 25, 30 people in there, which means one, you can that means you can have presentations in there or two, you can just do the larger party. Then you also have this big, expansive restaurant that it looked good, like they have these little intimate booths. Um, that could be, you know, that were essentially two tops, but can be four tops, which would be great for a date. And then the regular tables for the family. And I think the, me- like I said, bringing that menu back into a more coherent form, uh, at least in my eyes, uh, and pricing it 
in a very reasonable manner. Is it expensive? Yes. Going to a steakhouse is not a cheap thing when people say, well, I'll just make one at home. Well, then make one at home. So what are you getting then? You're getting not just the execution and someone taking care of you, which is a beautiful thing to have someone cook and clean and do all that. You're just taking care of, but you're getting top quality beef. You're getting, and you're getting it executed at a high level and you're getting it with friendly service. Uh, you're getting that experience. And I think it fits in well. And I think once again, I think they're this, I think this is a step up for them, their ability to compete, you know, on a much larger scale. Yes. Have they thrown a lot of money into it? Absolutely. They have. I mean, that whole company has gone through some really incredible changes, but I think it's kind of remarkable. Like they didn't, it seemed like they didn't wait for, you know, the industry and what COVID did to certain restaurants. They, 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 they seem to be very proactive in how they've handled it. So I think that also is a promising thing for them. Yeah, no, I, I think that's all well said. And, and I think ultimately, you know, we were there on day three. All of the, the successfully executed individual components didn't quite come through for me and, and wow me in the way that I kind of expected that they would. You know, I'm not going to hold that against them, right? I still consider this to be one of the very best steakhouses in Houston. I would happily go back. And I will, you know, once I'll, I'll give them a month or two and let things settle in. And then, you know, I think we'll go back and I think it'll be a more polished, more refined version of itself. Well, I think what's interesting is that, you know, you guys all love the Via Cajun ro- roasted oysters. I found them to be rather bland, but you guys all love them. I did. I also thought the Carpaccio was like the, the grand slam of the night. You know, I was almost a little dubious when people say, well, it tastes like pho. I'm like, OK. And you know what? It was delicious. It did. It was like the flavor, the textures. You know, I've had a lot of carpaccios that are either like they're too cold or they just end up being bland. Or in some cases, they they put too much on it. So you kind of lose it. It's not really the easiest thing to do well. And I thought they 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 hit the mark on that one. So we'll see. All right. Well, we are running long. So I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to say that does it for the restaurants of the week. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I'll be right back with. Paul Key and Christopher Hotta. I am joined this week by the chef partners in Gulf Stramen. Gentlemen, let me introduce you separately so people can hear your voices. He is a James Beard Award winner and a Top Chef winner. Paul Key, welcome to the show. How are you? How's it going? Thanks for doing this. He is the father of neo-Fjordic cuisine. Christopher Hotuft, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I wish I wish you could have said that I was a James Beard Award winner, and you know, not some title that I made up uh, made up for myself. <laughs> I was going to describe you as the chef owner of your restaurant in Norway, your seafood restaurant in Norway. But then I realized I was just going to mispronounce it, and I didn't want to do that. I, I think I'm I, I mispronounce Gulfstrom all the time, but I do not mispronounce Liz Liz Vaka. There you go, Liz Vaka. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I I mean, we have a lot of ground to cover, but let me just kind of start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how you became friends and now business partners, just because it seems sort of unlikely that. Uh, a chef from Texas and a chef from Norway would establish uh, that kind of relationship. I can take that one. So I had the, I, um, when, when I opened my restaurant back home, I, it's a very small town 
in Western Norway and I moved from New York and we were very ambitious. And I knew that if we sat alone on our little island for the rest of our career, we would kind of just shrivel and die. So I started a dinner series where I had a friend of mine uh, help me find chefs that would bring something to the food that we were cooking from an outside perspective. And uh, there was a couple of criteria, like it needs to be a nice guy, needs to, <laughs> needs to actually know how to cook and enjoy how to, you know, enjoy cooking and, uh, you know, be able to kind of uh, connect with the team, which is not a given when you do the guest chef uh, yeah, stuff. Yeah. So um, my friend uh, very quickly came up with Paul. We flew him over, put him on a sailboat, dropped him off on an island so he could forage a bit. We call it foraging because we're fancier. <laughs> and um, no, then uh, we, he, uh, he cooked with my guy and myself and my guys and uh, became friends. And then we kind of, I guess, kind of randomly ended up at a, Feast Portland together. Yeah. Cook, cook the same event at Feast Portland. Yep. He brought me down to Miami to cook it. Uh, Faina, a pal, Faina. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. We fell in love. <laughs> oh, yeah. People can't see on the Zoom, but but Chris yeah. just hugged Paul. Paul, let me sort of spin it around and, and take it the other way. How did you sort of contact Chris as a potential option for post-market? Like, what about his cooking made that seem like a fit? I mean, for me, it's just definitely, it's like, uh, just me and him click, you know, like, uh, we had the right energy together. So like, it was an easy fit for me when, when Kirby was like, Hey, I want to, I got this idea for this food hall. I want it to be like, you know, like I just, I want it to, to be, uh, known for food across, uh, you know, nationally and internationally. Um, it was easy for me to think of a Christopher, but initially I asked him to come do the pizza. Because he had just opened a pizza shop in Norway, a pizza and wine shop. And then, Christopher, I guess, maybe talk a little bit more about that. I mean, when Paul says, I want you to open a restaurant in, in Houston, I mean, had you ever, did you have any experience with Houston? Had you ever been to Houston? Yes. Uh, no, I had <laughs> never. I've been to, um, well, I've, been, I've been to Austin and Dallas and New Orleans. But um, no, I've never been here before. Uh, there's a bunch of Norwegian people here for oil, oil and gas. Um, but not really. My mom is from Tennessee, so I have a I, I'm a U.S. citizen, so it's easy. Like just the the practicality of of opening here was taken care of. But yeah, I I honestly he asked me if I want to do the hall, and I said yes because like my my approach to everything is always to say yes to every single request, and then I'll think about it and try to learn from it, and then I'll eventually turn it down when I get cold feet. <laughs> so, so I thought I would have an exit at some point before it would actually happen, and then. And then he, you know, like a year later, he's like, all right, so we're opening in October. Yep. It's like, oh, shit. Okay. But it, it transitioned from the pizza shop to, like, basically like the seafood market. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that, was a, that, that was a pretty cool transition, you know? Like, if Christopher wasn't involved with seafood market, uh, in the seafood market, I don't know if I would have wanted to do a seafood market. Yeah, I guess maybe elaborate on that just a little bit, because it's not obvious to me that, that a food hall would have either a seafood market, like a for to-go or an upscale seafood restaurant like that. I mean, most of what you're doing is kind of street food, like pretty casual stuff, but Gulfstrom is so much more elevated. So, so how did that kind of evolve? I definitely, I mean, like I, I would say Kirby Lou had definitely pushed the envelope on that a little bit. And I mean, you know, I started thinking like, Hey, Christopher, he's, he, he, his forte is seafood, you know, that, that, that's what he's strong about. 
And uh, yeah, the relationship between a lot of Norwegians being here, because when I was actually in Norway, I met a bunch of Norwegians there that used to live in Houston. And, and so like, I guess the, the, the story started forming sort of between that relationship. And, um, uh, and of course, uh, like we work with uh, Ben from Heritage Seafood and um, some, somehow it all just kind of ended up going together. I mean, it, 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 I mean, as far as opening restaurants, this is probably one of the sort of craziest. It's like one of the, it's a restaurant opening that didn't have an opening menu. <laughs> <laughs> it was basically all right we're 10 days out to open and christopher's gonna fly in from norway and then we're just gonna put it all together and open mm-hmm. yeah christopher one of the things that you're really focused on is is sustainability how did you kind of learn this market to figure out like what products you could use that would like meet your culinary perspective all right i mean that to me that's that's like an ongoing question right because like sustainability wise i'm i'm involved in uh I advise for um, a big uh, agri-tech impact fund in Europe. That so, we invest in in uh, a lot of um, very very progressive food and agri-tech startups, all based around how much impact they can they can do in um, you know basically on the food in the food side of uh, of carbon footprint or something like that, right? So, so I'm I'm used to thinking about food from a kind of a different sustainability angle. And I knew that if I'm going to go, first of all, we can kind of backtrack a bit and say, if like my, my initial thought is if I'm going to do something in Houston, it's got to do something that is um, in a sense, like intellectually challenging and, and it's very pretentious, but the pizza place, you know, it's a pizza place. It's not, yeah, it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that fun, but but so, so our first conversations on the seafood market was that, okay, let's do it, but let's try to make it the most sustainable seafood market in the world. Yeah. And when we, we kind of also agree that we probably won't, but show me a seafood market that is more sustainable. Yeah. Because that's not really a type of, dis, that's not a discussion that people have around these type of things. It's like, you know, the most sustainable sneaker shop in the world. It doesn't probably doesn't exist. Right. So I used a lot of the stuff that I've learned from this, uh, it's impact investing stuff. And uh, also, of course, by collaborating with the Marine Research Institute back home in Norway and just generally being interested. And then we said, all right, let's try to map out what seafood is available for us here. And then we have to try to have some judgment on, like the big question is, if you want to have impact, right, and not necessarily count carbon footprint, because those are two different things. You can have a low carbon footprint with zero impact. And you can have high impact and a high carbon footprint. So, with that, that like first you need to you need to ask. So, what what is more important? And I think the impact side is more important. Also, because in there there is, you know, it's the it's the it's the day to day stuff of actually like we can we can have pollock all night on the menu, but if people won't have it, then we have zero impact because we don't have guests. So, we need to figure out what what do people want, and how do we choose sustainably within what people want, and can we. Can we uh, can we guide them into taking like being happy with their choice, but then having them choose something a little bit different? As in, do you have snapper? And we say yes, we have vermilion snapper, right? Yeah. So we we score on both sustainability and give them what they want, but it's slightly different. Right. It's not red snapper. It's vermilion. Right. So no, but we will also do red snapper because we want to support. 
like we use Ben and we knew we want to buy him as much as possible from directly from him. And if he has red snapper, that's what he has. And then the other thing is like, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of farm uh, fish farming, which is also counterintuitive for a seafood chef who's into sustainability, but we need to feed 2 billion more people and they all, they have a right for a balanced diet and that balanced diet needs to include marine fatty acids. It will not come from wild caught fish. So we need to produce fish in the ocean. So with that, do we then highlight the best and most sustainable farmed fish from around the world to show impact? Or do we find the best farmed fish locally to reduce carbon footprint? Like, I don't, I don't have like great answers to these things, but these are the kind of like, so those questions coupled with just basically eating around town at all the seafood spots gave me an idea of what I think people enjoy here. But then, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not the best chef in the world. So I'm going to cook the way I cook, right? Like I can't, I can't, I can't fly into Houston and just like do what Houston does better than Houston. Like I need to do stuff I, I know how to do. And I think it is a bit more minimalist, maybe a bit, uh, may I say it's a bit lighter maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. I mean, just, just to be specific, right. You're not going to do feed Cajun crawfish or blackened snapper. I mean, you're going to kind of let the people yeah. that do that, do that. And you're going to yeah, do your I, own I thing. I would never blacken a fish, you know, like I don't like to me, that's, you know, no offense, but like, that's not how, how I, like, I'm so excited about cooking a piece of fish that I want it. I want to take it out of the pan the second it's done. And like, I don't want to, I don't know. That's not my style. Like, I, I understand it, but I love Viet Cajun crawfish, though. And I, that is maybe the best thing I've had in my entire life. Where was that place you took, you took me? Uh, Hong Kong market or something? It was a, it was a Cajun cafe. It, it, it's the crawfish place in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong's uh, mall. Oh, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that I think that is my top meal in the world. <laughs> <my> <laughs> that one bite, that one bite. That's it awesome. was it was more than one bite, man. Yeah. We had like a whole, you know, five truck. pounds. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so just elaborate a little bit on kind of creating the menu and where have you kind of found your footing in terms of it's got to be sustainable, but it's also got to be food we can sell, and it's got to be true to your cooking style. Yeah, the sustainability part just kind of permeates all the choices we do, right? So we try to work as much as possible with local uh, organic produce. Um, and then on the sustainability part, um, we we try to vary what we purchase off Ben so that it reflects what the, the fishermen are actually catching. So we're not cherry picking out of his out of his inventory and then let him sit be stuck with whatever, you know, he he doesn't sell that doesn't fit us perfectly and uh we use some guys up in in uh, maine that also it's pj stoops actually he migrated over there yeah uh, just for people who are listening pj was uh, a chef in houston for a long time yeah so and the fish they get up in, in maine is basically the same as what i get in norway so um it's very easy for me to choose off that list because i know that stuff some of the stuff here like well wait, we got some towel fish yesterday i had to ask what's well, a towel fish yeah <laughs> like i honestly don't know and then i see it and i say oh yeah it's that yellow one yeah get with a big head yeah right yeah <laughs> but uh but i know what a monkfish is yeah but um no and then with the the cooking uh, it's the same like when paul came and cooked in my place i'm pretty sure you had like uh, i'm pretty sure you thought of what you're cooking in the taxi from the hotel to the restaurant yeah right <laughs> because but um 
but the thing is like i i know how i like to make my sauces i want to make them very light and uh if, if we're using stuff like rhubarb or or um uh you have watermelon as a sauce now i, I yeah. balance it out with a lot of a lot of acid um so in general like i think that the the food i want to um I want. I don't want the food to be like a specific, like a very typical ceviche or a typical Japanese dish. But trying to try to take away a little bit of these, bit of these, uh, uh, the 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 markers from the different cuisines that will put it squarely in a box, right? So if you have raw fish and you have a soy, soy sauce with it, it it brings your head to a Japanese restaurant. So. So instead of soy sauce, we can use fermented tomato water, which sounds obnoxiously Nordic, but but it's actually uh, it takes a lot of those boxes, right? Because it has it has uh, it has a lot of umami and salt yeah. and all that stuff, right? So it, by 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 doing doing those type of moves with the food, I think the goal is to try to make food that that when you eat it, it seems familiar, but you can't really pinpoint it. Like you like you have these flavors that you kind of recognize, but you know, like I don't use a lot of lemon in the in in the food because lemon tastes like lemon all over the world so if you finish a fish with olive oil and lemon juice and close your eyes you could be at any country in any restaurant in the world right but in norway we use a lot of distilled vinegar um i, I use like reductions of uh wines and spirits my thing right now is i use a lot of uh pastis reduction i think it's still it's still delicious because yeah. <laughs> uh, by, by by when you reduce it it just kind of tastes like fennel and something you know but um yeah, I don't know. Does that make? Is that was that what was that your question? It was definitely not not my question. Uh, <laughs> so let me just ask you a, a slightly different version of the same thing, which is kind of how do you feel like it's going? I mean, you've been doing this for about six months now. You've definitely gotten some critical traction. You know, you're sort of limited because you're you're not here. You're here what every like six weeks or so, I guess. Um, I think it's. it's uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I mean, Paul's got to answer that because I didn't really have any expectation. Like to me, it was a huge uh, leap opening up here. You know, I'm not necessarily a very humble guy, but I um, I definitely didn't have any expectations of coming in here and and uh, like I just wanted to cook nice food. You know what I mean? That the critics and and press likes it a lot. That's a huge bonus. I didn't anticipate that. In terms of how it's going, I think it's, it's going pretty good. Like we have a super solid staff, which is something you can't take for granted today. Um, business is up and down, which by, back home in Norway, business is crazy weird. Like it's very counterintuitive. You, you would think that now like post COVID that it would be booming, but it's not back home, which is strange. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, Paul, I mean, what's your perspective on kind of how it's going in terms of you know, or people responding, is it, is it kind of meeting your expectations? Or I mean, you... I think the response so far is, I think for me has been, been great. Um, I know that there's some things that we need to shake out concept wise to make it easier for people to understand. Um, definitely. I know our space isn't hundred percent done yet, but we just went ahead and, you know, and open and just kind of pushed through all that. Um, but I mean, overall, I mean, I, I, I think we're headed the right direction. I mean, how would you kind of like to see the space develop? Because, I mean, you know, I've noticed even since you open, you know, you have nicer chairs, better plateware than you opened with. Yeah. But it, it still doesn't, you know, because it's in a food hall, it doesn't have the atmosphere of a, of a high-end restaurant, which is essentially what it is. 
So I, I think an important thing to know is that we opened this stuff with uh, just our, uh, you know, basically our own money and zero investors. And we, we, we are, uh, we are building it as we go. And that to me is like, and that's also very similar to how I normally, normally open a restaurant back home, because I honestly, I don't like having investors, but I'm also, I'm confident enough in what we do that I don't feel like, like we don't need that. And I, I never feel that need for a, the the first two week like crazy amount of buzz in the two first weeks and shake out a finished concept i i'm comfortable with it you know slow starting low and slow and then building it as as it kind of gets its own identity and and backbone and i definitely i'm definitely definitely think that we're i mean the restaurant now is a lot better than it was even when we opened and when we opened is when we got the, all that initial first very good yeah. press right but now the cooks like some of the cooks have been to Norway and cooked with us in Norway and the, the food that they're uh, putting out now, um, like ba because they need to come up with dishes based on this, on the daily produce that, that comes from the farms and from the fishermen. So it's not possible to make like a, to print a menu and put it on a blackboard behind the counter. And that's our menu because like it wouldn't be sustainable and it wouldn't be delicious. And it 100%, we couldn't claim to have, the best seafood in town like to have that you have you need to change your menu daily and um the the food that they're coming up with now on their own is is within the framework of what we want for the place and it's delicious it's delicious it's uniquely gorgeous yeah. food like it's not no, that's true it's not a dish that is like a tweak of a dish from one of the other restaurants or nothing it's just like they might ask themselves like is this is this the acid that Chris would put in it. If the answer is no, then they might, you know, find, yeah. you know, instead Different. of just, instead of just having like, if, uh, if not, it might, you know, not because of the cooks, but because of the system, that type of system of having an out of town chef and local crew, it, it, it could very easily kind of just lean back into the typical food of the environment that you're in. Yeah. I, I feel like this is the point at which I just kind of give a shout out to the guys who are working with you. Cause it seems like, they're really coming into their own. And of course, you know, you're in Norway. Paul's got a million things to do. I mean, you, you've really got to trust those guys to execute your vision. Yeah. And I mean, they, so all the three, the three uh, managers we have now, um, Stephanie, Biggie and Andre, like they, they have solid, solid backgrounds yeah. and they know stuff that I don't know. So like, honestly, I came here with dull knives, right. And I get embarrassed with it because they all pull out this one $500 knife after the other. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all razor sharp and 20 years old. Right. Yeah. So, and I don't know these sushi techniques that they've been doing. And like yeah. just yesterday, um, Biggie was showing me what's it called? The technique when you pour the hot water over the skin. Oh yeah. You Biggie. Yeah, like, yeah. I've seen that on YouTube. I've never yeah. actually done it. So I'm, you know, I will steal, I will steal that and take it home to Norway and, pretend like i came up with it in norway yeah <laughs> but uh but i mean that combination there that's like that to me is the the, the, the kind of unexpected bonus here because it yeah. would be easy for me to paul just to program a menu and have people execute it which is is kind of how you do a, a very uh, like a fast fast casual spot but it would never be great and then getting these these guys with their background makes it makes it makes us able to produce something that is at the, uh, better at the, than expected no i mean at the end of it for me too especially where I, i'm at in my career this is just definitely a nice oasis coming home to goals from it and checking out what 
we're doing here and working with the guys here, you know, it kind of revives like my inspiration to me to that, that brought me to where I am as a wanting to be a chef and wanting to cook. So for me, it's that, that's how, what that space means. So just why does it do that? Or, or what is it about like Gulf Strauman that prompts that for you? Uh, for me, it's just like the, the, the energy from from our talented chefs there to just me being able to hop on the line and just cook whenever I want to and not think about anything else. And like literally just getting excited about ingredients, right? Like tonight we got Urban Harvest. We asked those guys to just bring us produce and we're just going to cook it. It's that simple, right? It sounds crazy. You're like, all right, just show me good, great, great ingredients and we'll cook it. That That's that's like my mindset when I go to Gulf Strauman. And it's, that's like so not what my life is anymore, but but you know what I mean? Like that's just, yeah. That's, same, that's a, yeah it's same, same for me. Chris. Because yeah. back home in Norway, I'm Paul Key. Like I have, <laughs> I have, I have, a, I have a bunch of restaurants and have to manage and, you know, yeah. spend all day talking, yeah. on, just talking on the phone about, you know, some yeah. book. It was a no call, no show, whatever you call yeah. it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so here I just get to cook. Nobody bothers me when I'm in Texas because don't tell them, but they, they, they think it's so the time difference is so big. And I'm yeah. so, you know, like I just get, <laughs> I just get to cook. I mean, it's not nothing, right? It's got, a, it's what, like eight hours or something. Uh, it's seven. He doesn't sleep though. So it doesn't really count. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, so Chris, now that you've gotten to sort of fly the cooks to Norway and, and you've come here quite a bit, I mean, how would you kind of like to see the restaurant evolve? Like, what are your, what are your goals? I would. I just want to see it evolve the way it is evolving. But then, you know, the the building itself is isn't fully populated yet. So when we get all these office workers in, that's going to bring a, a new bunch of guys in. You know, uh, people are gonna. Every time I take an Uber here, the uh, the drivers never heard of the place. No, they heard of the place, but they never been. Right. So I'm I'm guessing that there's a lot of probably also your listeners who have heard about it but haven't been in yet. And then so, uh, I would say the quality of the food and our space itself and the team is going to just improve. And I, I firmly believe that statistically, if you, if you fail, you fail within the first or second year. And then after that, you're statistically safe in, op- in operating a restaurant. So we get past these, this, these for this first period, which we will, yeah. you know, this, this place is just going to take a, take on a life of its own. And then, uh, you know, one day we'll be, crazy successful somebody even more successful will come buy us out you know yeah. <laughs> Paul and I, Paul and I will to Bahamas and would you ever would you there. ever like want to do a version of Gulfstraman that's not in the food hall I mean would you want like a larger standalone space for it but that's the that's the thing we we're cooks we're poor we're for sale you know like, <laughs> I, have, I, have, I have low i have low morals and uh, i am easily corruptible so you show me some money i'm yours baby. <laughs> but i wouldn't do it i wouldn't do it instead of this you know like yeah. i would do i would do, like if we had a if we had a a a uh, an additional space it would give us a lot of advantages in terms of purchasing and, you know, we could have more specialized fish butchers, all these different things. Like we would just, we, we, it would just increase the quality of it. So we see from the traction we get that it would definitely fit well in a, in a brick and mortar somewhere. Oh, absolutely. And then Paul, let me just kind of ask you about the market more generally, you know, salt and time for whatever reason didn't work out. I, I don't really expect you to get into the Sure. The details of it, but but kind of what is working well in the market, and and kind of what else in terms of vendors, like what what would you like to see kind of come in? 
I mean, uh, I think for the most part, like you said, the familiar food does well in, in the market, right? Um, and, but I, I'd like to, to, I'd like for us to bring in more concepts, kind of like uh, like golf shaman, basically, like more, 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 maybe chef-driven concepts, and try to get more of our friends from around around the U.S. To, and the world to come to come do a spot here. So that's sort of my goal, because I think we've got the we've got the basic bases covered, right? You know, you got, you know, we got a pizza shop. We got a fried chicken spot. We don't have a pizza shop. shop. We have Roberta's. Okay. Right. You have one of the best pizzerias in the, in the country. Correct. (laughs) Correct. Right. I'm just saying, you know what I mean? We have some boxes checked, but I feel like we can still do familiar food, but maybe with, uh, with, uh, like, you know, like a different chef's lenses, you know? I mean, do you go vertical? Cause I, I mean, I can't help but notice that there's, you know, two other levels in the food hall and there's nothing. There's nothing there. Those are going to be all offices. It's going to be all offices above us. But we have, uh, I think we have about four more spots. And actually, we'll, fingers crossed, we'll, we have some friends coming into town. Yeah, I mean, a, a long time ago, you know, I got a tour of the property and Kirby said that there's room on the on the roof for a restaurant. I, I don't know if you want to say anything about that, but. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like there, there might be talking to some people for, for the rooftop spots, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet who's, who, what spot there's like, there, there's a group of maybe six to eight concepts that they're kind of, uh, going over to see who's going to go up there. But, um, I mean, for me, my, my biggest impact is essentially in the food hall. So I've been trying to focus, trying to get more of our friends into the food hall. Cause I think like for chefs, especially like Christopher and other chef friends of ours that are sort of in the same seat of it as us, it's almost, it, it would be a nice, nice space for them to just kind of not think and cook, cook stuff here. And I kind of want more of those concepts here. <laughs> well, and, and maybe just elaborate a little bit on your partnership with, here's where I mispronounce another name, Tom Kananen. Oh, Kanan. Oh yeah, man. Uh, so that, yeah, like Tom, Tom's a perfect example of it. You know, like I, op- I opened the, the Filipino concept uh, initially a brand started during COVID and, and I realized I needed some help, but I also wanted to have, you know, more fun with Filipino food and learn about it more. So I try to bring the best Filipino chef in the country in, and he moved to Houston <laughs> part time. <laughs> so I think for me, it's a, it's a win for everybody. If we can do more projects like that. Yeah. So, so what's going on at Soy Pinoy? I mean, like, obviously he, he helped you put in a new menu, but is there more coming? Yeah, absolutely, man. Tom, Tom's probably worse than me and he's a little bit younger. So he's just like always changing the menu. So like, I mean, just like what's happening at Golf Strawman, we're sort of doing the same thing with the space at Soy Pinoy where things aren't finalized yet. But, um, but yeah, man, that, that guy has a billion ideas and he, we're definitely, I mean, he's hot right now. He was on the cover of food and wine and all that stuff. So as soon as he gets back to town, we'll get, we'll get right, right straight back to work. And uh, yeah, the menu is going to continue to evolve. And then I guess, Chris, I, I mean, we can, we can kind of wrap this up. I mean, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but what's it been like for you just kind of personally, like getting to know a new city and kind of meet people? I mean, what do you think about Houston now that you've gotten to know it a little bit? That, that's a good question. I, I came down there basically with uh, probably uh, less than great expectations of the city because of how Norwegians have talked about it after working here. Right? But after being after I've been here a while, I suspect the Norwegians that have worked here have been they've acted like Norwegians act on vacation <laughs> everywhere else. So, you know, you go to your hotel and then you put on your, your shirt and you step out on the street because in, in Europe you walk everywhere. You step out on your street downtown here and yeah. try to find a happening bar downtown. Yeah. 
and just walk around and go, damn, this is a boring town. But then what? <laughs> my first time here, uh, um, Paul said, all right, I'm going to take you to take you to this nice restaurant. It's just right down the street. So it was another it was about a 30, 40 minute drive down to some place that's still in Houston. And then after that, it's like, all right, you're still hungry. OK, I know, know another spot. And then it's a 30 minute drive a different direction. But there's all these amazing places. And just I understood that the way you use this city is not like you use a European city where you just walk from neighborhood to neighborhood. So I've, yeah, I've, there's not like, you know, trains and stuff to take you places. You're, you're well, really on your own. And yeah. uh, so I would say like the boat, like I used to live in New York and New York is a little bit more like you can walk around a bit. Right. But here, uh, New York is such a, has such a big city mentality here. People are more friendly. They're more curious who you are, what you do. And it's so diverse. And I've never, I, you know, West, West coast of Norway is not very diverse. So all this, all the, <laughs> it's the truth though, you know, yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. everybody looks like yeah. me and everybody has the exact same back, background as me. Right. And here, like just the food that I get here is like best food I've had in my life. All this, yeah. all these different Asian restaurants. And, yeah. you know, like to me, that's incredibly exciting. And then also just the, the mix in, in this big food hall, all the mix of characters that work here yeah, yeah, and yeah. how friendly <laughs> and cool everybody is. And they're excited to show me around and, you know, like, I feel like uh, I have like, um, I don't know. I'm very, very fortunate, man, because it's like a break from my ordinary life. Uh, and I just I get to experience stuff that a 42 year old man from Norway never really get, gets to see. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then, Paul, let me just ask you, I mean, you know, you had a key here, you know, a fine dining restaurant. Do you think that you'll do restaurants outside of post market or are you, you pretty committed to that at, at this point? Um. Like I mean, like Christopher said earlier, I mean, if if there's the right opportunity, I'm I'm I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, right now, I'm enjoying kind of what we're doing right uh, here at the post. And uh, but yeah, I, I I can't predict the future, but I I do love taking on projects. <laughs> so we're very similar like that, yeah. you know. Like we, uh, yeah. I think Paul and then uh, our friend who's coming in and scouting the space tomorrow, which we won't tell who it is, but he's another <laughs> another friend that's gonna might come in. Here. <laughs> Like, the three of us are exactly the same. Yeah. Like there's something wrong with us where we can't say, no, I think I should focus on what I'm doing right now and then keep, <laughs> it, keep it on the low key for a bit. Like at any given point, there's always, you know, juggling a bunch of projects that might or might not be, but it, it, it's a really, it, it gives me a ton of energy because that's, it's very rare. You find uh, people like that. That's also your friends and you, you, you come out of it like, uh, and what's called invigorated, you yeah. know, and like in, yeah. and inspired. So, I can tell you for sure that Paul's going to definitely open a lot more restaurants everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that brings me to the end of my questions. Is there anything you want to discuss that I haven't asked you about? Mm. Do you like? Did you enjoy the food last night? I did <laughs> enjoy the food. I, I've enjoyed all of my meals at Gulf Stramen, and I know you probably have better things to do than to listen to every episode of the show, but I, I've tried to be pretty effusive about it in my various platforms, whether that's, uh, no, I've, I've fast forwarded to, to the segments where you've been talking about and, <laughs> <laughs> and I put it on loop and I show my friends in Norway and it's like, look, look, man, I'm big in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like big in Japan? It's kind of the same yeah, thing. Cooler. That's yeah. It was in the eighties. <laughs> hmm. No, I, I mean, I, I really enjoy what you guys are doing and, and I do think it's a little different. And I mean, you know, I, I came there on my birthday. I don't have very many 
like hire compliments to pay a restaurant than like, and also, you know, it's like a Monday, so it's a weird night to go out, but yeah, you know, I came in and crushed some oysters and some scallops and just had a good time. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Paul Key, what is your favorite ingredient? I don't know, but the first thing that came in my mind was rabbit. But it, it, it's probably because I've been thinking about bringing rabbit into the restaurant. But yeah. <laughs> Christopher Hatuff, what is your favorite ingredient? I'm gonna see. I'm gonna say whale. Just to <laughs> people. Uh, that's definitely the first time we've ever had whale. Chris, what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Oh, easy, Motorhead. That's a that's a great answer. Uh, Paul, how about you? <laughs> it was Beastie Boys. Oh, that's yeah. another great answer. I usually ask people who their favorite Houston sports figure is, but I, I think I'm gonna strike out on with both of you. Uh, Probably. Christopher, do you have a favorite professional athlete? Uh, what's the guy, the hot dog eating champion? That, uh... <laughs> uh, 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 was it Kobe? The Kobe Japanese Kobayashi. guy, Kobayashi. <laughs> I, I had drinks with those guys after Coney Island thing, after they did a, a, the 4th of July, whatever it was at Coney Island. And it was the most disgusting little soiree. Like they're all yeah. burping, burping, hot dog burps. And... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Joey Chestnut, right? I think is the is the super champion. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, how about you? Do you have a favorite athlete? Man, yeah, you're right. I, I don't I don't really follow a ton of sports, man. I'm a little embarrassed to say. No, no, it's this this show airs on a sports talk radio station, so I, I feel like I gotta I gotta you gotta uh, ask the sports. I gotta ask the sports question. Paul, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive through. It has to come from a restaurant for a drive through. Yeah, I guess Popeyes. Okay. Chris, do you have a favorite fast food? American yeah, fast food. I'm going to cancel your last leg of that question with the drive-through. I'm going to say it is a frozen sec, frozen food section. Uh, the aisle on. Oh, he uh, likes H- the, he likes the frozen food section in HEB. Yeah. So <laughs> my first stop when I every time I arrive is there, and I buy like some orange juice, some beer, some chips, and, and like a bunch of frozen ten food. different types of uh, frozen what's it called microwavable yeah. uh, TV dinners. Yeah. Love it. You're such, <laughs> such a great country here. <laughs> and then uh, finally, I, I know you probably don't get a ton of time when you're in Houston, but is there a new restaurant you've been to in Houston or, or what's your, what's been your, your most memorable meal in Houston recently? I'll, I'll put it to you like that. What do you think? Oh shit. I have to try to remember where I, where was it? Just tell me, I'll, I'll remind you. Oh, I feel now I feel like an idiot, right? All right, well, we ate we ate a blue door, and that was very nice. Oh my god, you haven't taken me to Blood Brothers yet. No, I haven't. No, oh, we, we so go, I'm gonna say Blood Brothers because right I know now. I know I, I know I'm gonna like it. We should go right yeah. now, actually. Well, they're not open on Tuesday, but you, oh, you should go. You should go tomorrow. Tomorrow, we'll go tomorrow. which will be very confusing for people when this show comes out. And I, I would, would just say, like, if all of these different Vietnamese and places that you've taken me that I wouldn't even even if i try to pronounce it right i wouldn't get it right so what's called duck duck yeah the, the noodle place duck uh what the pho guy place yeah. no 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 like uh, no which one like the, was it a pho place or was it a i don't know that doesn't matter anyway probably, yeah there's a bunch of stuff on bel-air that he likes all right uh yeah. give me the website the social media all that stuff for golf uh, it's golfstroman.com and it's at golfstroman on instagram gentlemen thanks so much for doing this thank you thank you man you can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. 
Thanks so much for listening. 